Tonight we're bringing you episode 54, and the date is April 9th, 2015. I'm Carolyn Yeager. And I'm Ray Goodwin. And so, Ray, are you ready for a good show tonight? I really am. And I, I first of all, I want to say thank you to the listener who sent the uh, happy birthday wish to me uh, last week. I think I noticed the name Rick on it, but I'm not sure. But anyway, I really appreciate that. It's very thoughtful. Yeah, that was Rick. And, you know, uh, you're very popular, Ray. A lot of people, when they write to me about something or other, they mention you and they all uh, appreciate you. And some of them think I should uh, shut up and let you talk. <laughs> you know, they say a lot of things. <laughs> but it all indicates that uh, that you're pretty well received, so... You can I imagine you have a lot much. more birthday wishes than that from Rick. But that was oh, nice boy. of him to point oh. it out. Sure. Thank well, you. Yeah, well, we've got um, an interesting uh, bunch of uh, segments tonight, but there's nothing that really is uh, earth-shaking. Again, it's kind of quiet. But it's, this is the kind of thing that's very interesting to me often when you can pay attention to some of the details. And there's a lot of uh, history in it. And a lot of right. opinions by the Fuhrer, too, particularly about the nobility mm-hmm. and aristocratic uh, lines That's and so That's exactly on. right. <laughs> the princes, so, uh, the kings, the ruling families. Yep. Right, and he's pretty right on about all that. So uh, let's, uh, yeah, and then the other thing, I think, uh, I, I'm pretty sure we will... Come to the end of 1942 tonight, and we're going to uh, yes. jump into 1943. And it's going to be yes, a big jump, will. like about eight or nine months, it, you know. It's great. actually close to ten months. And, uh, oh. I had a, yeah, I had a, I had a couple of things to throw in when we reached there regarding that ten-month gap, some very significant things that happened. And, and oh, uh, so, uh, anyway, yeah, we like I also I, have the timeline up here, and I was yeah. looking at it and uh, noticing some things. But if you've got them all organized, uh, I'm happy that you're going to do that. I thought that was important, too. It was important that we do that. Yeah, I've just got a couple, and they may be the same as yours and uh, and may not. So, Yeah. Okay. So let's start it then. Uh, I don't have a timeline for this particular day. I think I already gave it. Okay. We're, we are 5th of September, 1942. I helped pull down Serrano, Sr., Personality of Alfonso the Thirteenth, the race of princes, 
The process of selectivity in reverse, the train of the Archduke Otto, the art of cultivating idols, Serrano Sr. and the Latin Union. Epp has just submitted a paper on the colonial problem to me. I must say, no colonies which we may obtain elsewhere in the world will compare with those which we hold in the East. Serrano Sr., had he been given the chance, would gradually have engineered the annihilation of the phalange and the restoration of the monarchy. His disgrace has certainly been accelerated by my recent declaration that he was an absolute swine. Alfonso XIII was certainly a man, yet he too brought ruin on himself. Why, I wonder, did he not keep Primo de Rivera? I can understand most things, but I shall never understand why, when once one has seized power, one does not hold it with all one's might. Princes constitute a race unique in the world for the depth of their stupidity. They are the classic example of the laws of selectivity working in reverse. If the Habsburgs were to return to Hungary, they are so stupid that their presence would immediately give rise to a crisis without parallel. There are circumstances in which an attitude of passivity is absolutely untenable. With each generation, the princes of Europe become a little more degenerate. In Bavaria, this process developed into tragedy, for they eventually became insane. When all is said and done, the whole of the European royal families are descended from the old Frankish nobility, which was founded by Charlemagne and has since withered away through inbreeding. The Austrian princes had a better chance of survival, for they were allowed to seek their wives amongst commoners. I cannot but admire the patience of the people who tolerate such, such fripperies. The practice of kneeling to royalty had at least this advantage, that it prevented the subjects from contemplating the idiot faces of their rulers. <laughs> Efforts for improving the breed of cattle never cease, but in the case of the aristocracy, the reverse obtains. The Hohenzollers are no exception to the rule. They all have their little idiosyncrasies, not excluding our dear little A.W., Prince August Wilhelm, the son of Kaiser Wilhelm, and a member of the National Socialist Party. There should be a law prohibiting princes from having inter intercourse with anyone except chauffeurs and grooms. If the, town, if, excuse me, if the crown of Brazil were offered to the Spanish pretender, he would, he would accept it unhesitatingly. He would become king of Sweden with the same enthusiasm. He doesn't care a damn what the country is as long as he is king of it. Are people like that of any real value? To browse through the archives of these families is an edifying experience. The Wittelsbachs wanted to exchange Saljak for Belgium, but the whole thing fell through thanks to a disagreement over 68 acres of land and thanks also, to a certain degree, to the intervention of Frederick the Great, who did not wish to see the influence of the Habsburgs spread westward. The negotiations were conducted by the minister Kreitmeier, which is why our friend Hamstangel insisted on the destruction of Kreitmeier's statue in Munich. I myself was opposed to it. The men of those days did not possess the national sense, as we understand it today. Ludwig I of Bavaria was the first monarch who thought in terms of the whole German Reich. 
for the others, dynastic interests were predominant. Uh, I'm going to stop right there, uh, Carolyn. There's a couple of things here that I wasn't too sure of, and I wanted to bounce off of you. Uh, of course, he, he gets into that uh, very good comparison. He said uh, efforts for improving the breed of cattle never cease, but in the case of the mm-hmm. aristocracy, the, the reverse obtains. Uh, and he talks about the only royalty having a real chance uh, was the, the Austrian princes because they were able to uh, pick their wives from uh, 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 among the commoners. Uh, but when he hits on this uh, term here, if the crown of Brazil were offered to the Spanish pretender. Now, I had a couple of ideas. I wasn't sure who he was talking about uh, when he says the Spanish pretender. Uh, figured, figured it must have been the king of Spain, uh, or was it Serrano Sr.? Uh, was it, uh, uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Alfonso uh, the Thirteenth. I wasn't sure who he meant there, and I just wondered if you had any idea. Well... I don't think it's um, I don't think it's Serrano Sr. because he's not a pretender. He didn't have that throne. kind of uh, uh, no, yeah, that elevation. No, and uh, uh-huh. and what was the, and and I and what was the other you said? Was it Alfonso Thirteenth? Well, see now I looked up uh, Alfonso. He thought fairly well of Alfonso, but he didn't. He thought yes. he didn't do as well as he should have. And Alfonso yeah. was actually German. See, here, here's the thing about these people. They all come from the same, they're all inter, interrelated, all these royalty in, in Europe. And so, yeah. in a way, it makes kind of sense that it doesn't matter uh, what what country he got on the throne of, because they would call in, you know, if they needed a king or a queen, or they not a yes. queen, but generally a king, and uh, something happened, they'd go and look for someone somewhere. Uh, who was had the right pedigree, you know, and who was related to all the right people. Now, this Alfonso, right. who was on the throne of Spain for quite a number of years, mm-hmm. for all this period of time, his mother was Maria Christina of Austria, and his wife was mm-hmm. Victoria Eugenia of Battenberg. She was mostly German, but she had the uh, British veneer because she was uh, she lived there, I guess, and grew up there or something, and she was uh, uh, Queen Victoria's granddaughter, yeah. and Maria Christina was, was she was an Austrian German, and and there's all these you know mostly well Queen Victoria was had to be part German, and then her husband was all German, so their children, you know, and mm-hmm. grandchildren were had all this were mostly German, so these people were just uh, I don't know it's all about pedigree, which Hitler is saying it should be about your your interest in the country, you yes. know, that you're ruling and your association with it, not just your royal pedigree. But that's the that's way they it. did it then. But I don't know. Uh, I can't answer your question. Because well, I, I honestly, uh, well, I think, think you it. said enough there to let me know. it had to be, He had to be talking about Alfonso Thirteenth. You know, he, uh, he does say he was certainly a man, yet he too brought ruin on himself. And so, uh, and then, you know, he's, it's yeah, like but that's like he's a pretender that we don't know about. Yeah, um, yeah, but it, you know what? What you said there? Yeah. yeah, he said he said uh, uh, he doesn't care a damn of what the country is, and this is what you've just been talking about. Yeah. He says if he was offered the the crown of Brazil or even uh, Sweden, uh, <clears throat> he would jump on that and. 
it's so he doesn't care about uh, what the country is as long as he's king of it. And and what he's doing there is just saying uh, the the close linkage of all these princes and in uh, royalty and how that's such a weakness uh, as far as any love of country any nationalistic feeling. And uh, so anyway, I thought it was uh, uh, I thought it was an yeah. interesting. Uh, Bit well, right there about because I'm, I, you know, you're right. We're not told, but I don't know. I, I read about Alfonso, but not enough to know. Anyway, and he really dislikes this Serrano Sr. My God, he hates this. Oh, right. Yes. Uh, yes. And you know, Serrano Sr. supposedly was all pro-national socialist and pro-German and everything. But what he doesn't like is that he knew that he was secretly trying to restore the monarchy, even mm-hmm. though. Fr- was friends with the monarchy, but um, I'm not sure even if there was a monarchy under Franco, or they're just the Catholic Church. Well, what it it was, yes, it was there. Uh, It was uh, was like Mussolini in Italy. It was a very similar situation. Uh, The monarchy kind of, you know, they were there. They were certainly there, and, and and the... Politicians behind the scenes, so to speak, were active, just as they were in Spain. Similar situation. Well, I'm that, uh, that Hitler was more against monarchy than just uh, than yes. as, any, than as, much, as much as anything. You know, he really yeah he, he, really he felt he, he felt like bringing them back would lead to the same ruin that came uh, in World in World War One and right after World War One when these uh, monarchies started to dissipate and revolutions came and things like this. And they were just bad for because uh, the uh, monarchy did not uh, stand up for the country as as a nationalistic leader, more interested in his people would have. So, Plus anyway, he really found the uh, her- the inheritance law or whatever very bad for everything. You know that you, you yes. couldn't just take the the children of the current ruler and think they're going to do a good job. So he's altogether right about that. That was disastrous. Sometimes it worked real well, sometimes it didn't. But although they didn't have unlimited power in more recent times, so that kind of (laughs) sublimated. But I just want to bring up something here, Ray, in the very first paragraph. And here I am always uh, seem to be uh, focusing on this. Well, it catches my attention because I am focused on it, I guess. But he says that they're going to have the uh, colonies in the east. He says there's no colonies anywhere else that we could have that would be as good as these colonies we hold in the east. So he's we he's, they're just occupying places now. I don't know that you'd call them colonies, but he's seeing them and, and foreseeing uh, them being colonies. He's calling them colonies anyway. Yes. Uh, you know, this tells me that he considers the people of the East, and I think he means from the, you know, the Slavs included, not just Asians, mm-hmm. but Slavs, different enough Certainly. from Germanics that they can be colonized. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not apologizing for that. Um, and, uh, oh, I, I, you know, and I think he's certainly including the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians, the Crimean area, uh, and, and a lot of that because of the uh, value that those Colonies or countries are going to have in the in the in the well, agricultural, right? Uh, yeah, you know things like that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's what he sees there. That's what he wants there. Yeah, and uh, and the, and also in uh, 
Well, in Russia, I think he mostly thinks in terms of Ukraine and Russia, which some people think are very much the same. So the, those mm-hmm. are the slobs that he wants to colonize because of, uh, well, for one, Ukraine, the, well, there's a lot of wealth in uh, in Russia, too, that mineral wealth and gas and oil and all yes, that stuff that, right. that he values. So, But he was not going to treat the... Hungarians or the Romanians that way, I'm quite sure, unless they change their tune, because, um, you know, and but they, they're not known to be Slavic either. But the, they were also friendly with with National Socialist Germany and uh, allied mm-hmm. with them. So that was that was the difference. Well, I just thought, you know, I just picked up on that, that that he is saying that. and uh, But I, I really appreciate what you just said about it, because you, you put it in better perspective. So, uh, well, thank you. It was uh, a clearing thing for me too. And uh, now he's fixing to start. What he's fixing to say next is about the Hungarian situation. The journey of Otto, the son of Zita, to Budapest reads like a novel. His suite consisted of a Hungarian nobleman and a trumpeter perched on the engine, who from time to time all but burst his lungs with his trumpetings. Horthy did not even deign to receive him. The whole buffoonery had been organized by Zita. Its repulse was the work of Madame Horthy. I leave you to imagine for yourselves the denouement of this grandiose undertaking. The only person whose head had entered to welcome the heroes was the brother of Franz Lihar. In Vienna, Otto would just about have been fitted to become a maitre d' a maitre d' hotel. If the Habsburgs had had an ounce of character, they would have defended their heritage or died. As it was, they docilely surrendered their rights and then tried to recover them by force. Humanity cannot exist without an idol. The Americans, for instance, must needs put their president on a pedestal for as long as he remains president. The monarchies have shown themselves singularly adept at getting up this particular type of idol, and there's no doubt that the whole performance has a measure of common sense in it. It succeeds splendidly, provided always that it is backed by force and power. The church, for example, possesses nothing but the outer trappings. Its troops consist of inoffensive archers, nice fellows with broken arrows, one has only to see them marching in the Corpus Christi procession to understand why the revolutionaries of 1918 left them in peace. When Franco appears in public, he is always surrounded by his Moorish guard. He has assimilated all the mannerisms of royalty, and when the king returns, he will be the ideal stirrup holder. I am quite sure that Serrano Sr. was goaded on by the clergy, His plan was to found a Latin union of France, Italy, and Spain, and then derange it at Britain's side, the whole to have the blessing of the Archbishop of Canterbury and a little spicing of communism for good measure. I think one of the best things we ever did was to permit a Spanish legion to fight at our side. On the first opportunity, I shall decorate Munoz Grande with the iron cross with oak leaves and diamonds. It will pay dividends. Soldiers, whoever they may be, are always enthusiastic about a courageous commander. When the time comes for the legion to return to Spain, 
We must re-equip it on a regal scale, give it a heap of booty and a handful of Russian generals as trophies. Then they will have a triumphal entry into Madrid, and their prestige will be unassailable. Taking it all around, the Spanish press is the best in the world. So he thinks the Spanish, uh, and particularly this uh, Munoz Grande and his, his type of uh, people, he's a, mm-hmm. he's a soldier, of course, but um, sure. as on the side of Germany as friendly with the National Socialism and so on. So he wants to uh, improve their image <laughs> in Spain. I think that's what he's talking mm-hmm. about there. You know, there's something I want sure. to come get back to uh, with the uh, Alfonso the Thirteenth story and, and these uh, European uh, nobility in those days. Speaking of how they how they could fit themselves to whatever the opportunity was and what they were asked to do, when uh, Alfonso was looking for a wife and he met Victoria Eugenie in in London or somewhere on a visit, he liked her, and so they got to see each other a little bit. Well, then there were problems because. He was Catholic, of course, Catholic Spain, and she was a Protestant. So she had to, but she was agreeable to to switch her religion and become a Catholic. So you see how, of course, a lot of people do that today. It's not a big deal, but it's right. just one of those things that they're willing to, she's willing to change. Uh, she was also a hemophiliac. Uh, she wasn't a hemophiliac, but her brother was, the um, the royal brother. So they figured, didn't know if she was a carrier or not. If you have it in your family, you might be a carrier, you might not. Well, so right. uh, there was a lot of discussion about that, but Alfonso liked her, and they wanted to, you know, get that done. So they thought, okay, we'll let them marry. And when they had their first child, uh, I think it was okay, but when they had their first son, he was a hemophiliac. So she was a carrier, and they had four children Two uh, daughters who were okay, and two sons who were both hemophiliac. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I, that's not the important part. The only important part was that she changed her uh, religion to fit to become uh, a Spanish person, a Spanish queen. Well, that, that's quite a coincidence because it parallels Tsar uh, Alexander the Second. You know, he had the four daughters and the one son, and his only son, who was going to be the heir to the throne one day was hemophiliac, and they had to really, really watch and take care of him because of that danger. But uh, none of his girls were afflicted with it, but uh, his only son was. Well, there you go. Maybe they were of the same blood, maybe of the same genetic strain there. Yes. Because people roam all around Europe and were, you know, showing up here and there. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Hmm. Well, okay, right. <clears throat> we'll uh, move on to 6th of September, 1942, midday. The tenuous thread of destiny, Russian mistakes at Stalingrad, racial mixtures, sailors on leave. It is sobering to think on how thin a thread of fate the history of the world sometimes depends. We lost the 1914-18 war. But we have not the right to say that we did so because the home front let us down. Our enemies at the time had some men of the highest quality. It was in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme that tanks made their first appearance. But it was not until 1917 that our industry was switched to their construction with orders to make an initial quota of 600. 
At the same moment, Fuller, supported by Lloyd George and Churchill, succeeded in causing the ban on their production to be lifted, which had been, been imposed by Haig. It is becoming more and more obvious that a rift in public opinion in Britain is gradually widening, each individual going to the right or to the left as it suits him. <clears throat> of all our allies, it is Antonescu who has the greatest breadth of vision. He's a man of real personality, and he has, moreover, realized that this war gives Romania the chance to become predominant in the Balkans, but at the expense of finding the other Balkan states in alliance against her. The concentration of effort in the defense of Stalingrad is a grave mistake on the part of the Russians. The victor in war is he who commits the fewest number of mistakes and who has also a blind faith in victory. If the Russians had not decided to make a stand at Stalingrad, they would have done so elsewhere, but it does prove that a name can give, it, uh, can give to a place a significance which bears no relation to its intrinsic value. For the Bolsheviks, it would have been an evil omen to lose Stalingrad, and so they still hold Leningrad. For this reason, I have always refused to allow my name or that of any of my colleagues to be given to anything exposed to the hazards of war, be it a town or a battleship. It's precisely in time of war that people become most superstitious. The Romans, including Julius Caesar, were a superstitious people, although it's quite possible that Caesar was not really superstitious but simply bowed to public opinion. I myself would never launch an attack on the 13th, not because I myself am superstitious, but because others are. Dates play no part in my life. I have frequently had setbacks on days deemed propitious and successes on days condemned as unlucky. <clears throat> now, I was going to stop right there because it seems to me, maybe uh, my mind is playing tricks, uh, Carolyn, but it seems to me he has talked something yeah. very similar yeah, like has. this before I was that, say that we have covered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I had to, when I was reading that, I thought, doggone, my mind's telling me that he has said this before in his uh, table talk, but mm -hmm. it's quite valuable. I really like what he says here, and it makes a good sense about uh, giving your name to a battleship, and then the enemy sinks the the uh, battleship Hitler or the battleship Goring, and and it's, uh, it, it is translated in the minds of a lot of the people. They say, oh, my goodness, our Fuhrer, the ship named after our Fuhrer is down. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so there is that element there that uh, you avoid, uh, like he said he did. And uh, he wouldn't give the name, allow his name or any of his uh, colleagues to be used. Uh, that was exposed to the hazards of war. Well, he also seems to be saying that going so much out for this defense of Stalingrad is a mistake. Well, he actually came out yeah. and said that. And that that's why, you, you know, they feel like they have to because it's named Stalingrad. But mm -hmm. in the end, unfortunately, uh, he was uh, wrong about about that because maybe that strong defense is what saved it and made it, it was a turning point in the war. Because why, if it, if it wasn't so important, why were we so... Anxious to take it. What was the value of Stalingrad? Offhand, can you say, Ray, or why? Why was it? Was, it? Uh, 
Go ahead. Well, it was uh, militarily a very significant, uh, significant because of the size of the battle and the, the amount of troops committed to taking yeah, it as well as defending it. Yeah, but why did we need to take Stalingrad? Was it on the way to something? Was it... Uh, was it key? Uh, I need to look at a map. <laughs> well, it, it was uh, between. It's kind of between the Crimean and the Black Sea. It is uh, geographically southeast of Moscow, and uh, Leningrad, on the other hand, is northwest of Moscow, mm-hmm. real close to Finland. Mm-hmm. And uh, but 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 I do think that Stalingrad was uh, militarily extremely valuable because uh, to take it. Uh, it would have enabled uh, a huge German base to be built there with troops piled up there to advance further into Russia and maybe even go back to the west some to take Moscow. But but it was a, a military uh, thing that made it so valuable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the fact that it was named after Stalin, of course, uh, yeah, would have played on the minds of some people. Right. Well, he uh, also said right in the beginning, you know, he's he's famous for declaring, he and, and the par- other party, bigwigs, high echelon people, that Germany lost World War II because of a stab in the back, and it was because of the, the Bolshevik influence at home and so on, and the collapse of the of the home front strikes at, strikes at home and so yeah, on. Yeah, World War One. huh yeah, World War One. But here he's saying, well, we don't have the. He's making a little correction here, saying uh, maybe he's just in, thinking this right at the moment. But we don't have we uh, don't have the right to say that because uh, we the, the uh, other side was actually of very high quality, and we we were not smart enough to produce tanks. And yes, you know right. we, were, we were late, and we were you know a year late, and so on. Um, and then we didn't have that many, so, uh, and I don't know what this sentence here, Fuller, supported by Lord George and Churchill, succeeded in causing a ban, the ban on their production, does that mean in Britain? They, yes. uh, yeah, he's they talking about the Yeah, they lift, so they, in Britain, they yeah. lifted the ban, but I don't know, he doesn't give a date here, it had been imposed by Hague, for some reason. Yeah, I think that Fuller is J.W.C. Fuller. I think that he has three initials. He was a military commander, uh, or uh, at least considered a a really, really uh, smart guy as far as the military part of the war and uh, the battles and everything. And, uh, you know, and he, uh, uh, this band that Haig uh, had said, okay, don't build any more tanks, and I would like to know more about that because it is interesting why you would do something like that unless yeah, you figured you had enough. With World War One and everybody was not supposed to rearm or something. And so they had yeah. that ban there. But then uh, Lloyd George and Churchill succeeded in uh, getting rid of that. I don't yeah. know. It's, Fuller I supported I, by those two. Yeah. Uh-huh. I wasn't really questioning that real strongly when I first read it. So I need to look it up. The breakthrough to Abbeville was an advance of a mere 350 kilometers, which is nothing in comparison with distances in the east. There we must pursue ceaselessly and give them no respite. What a fine race the Dutch are. The girls are splendid and very much to my taste. The blemishes in the Dutch are due to interbreeding with the Malays, 
and that in its turn is the result of sexual urge and the lack of a sufficiency of white women in their colonies. We had much the same thing in our own colonies. A German had the right to marry a negress, provided she was a Catholic, but not a German girl if she happened to be a Protestant. Even today, the Catholic priest chatters for months if one of his flock wishes to marry a Protestant. It is not very long ago that, in the country, a marriage between a Catholic and a Protestant was stigmatized as an insult to the holy altar, but nobody bothered their heads about the color of bastards. In the British Empire, things are very different, but the Church of England is a political rather than, rather than an ecclesiastical organization. <clears throat> Anything to say about that? That's, uh, the Church of England always stands up for England more than it uh, mm -hmm. you know stands up for some its uh, religious spiritual right its own uh, it. its own it's in power entity it's a political church and that's what hitler was wanting to get in in germany but uh failed to do mm -hmm. it and he uh here we have these, this church and again here he's talking about race and he's making it clear what well, goes on with that too making it clear right. how important it is not to intermarry with non-whites and he uh, and he's saying that uh, according to the church, if you're uh, if if even a negress is a is a Catholic, that's okay to marry her. But if she's a pure pure German girl, but she's a Protestant, then a Catholic can't marry her. And so you know that was so very true too. And for a long oh, time, yeah. even in the fifties, mm -hmm. I know my Catholic relatives. Some of them were they just know yeah. they. They couldn't have anything going on between themselves and Protestants at all. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, it, and Hitler thought it's such a anomaly to uh, be so concerned about that, the difference in religion, and not even give a passing whisper to what about the color right. of these kids born from these marriages, you know, meaning they didn't emphasize race at all when it should have been mm -hmm. of prime importance. Right. <clears throat> So that just again shows how he brings up race. Well, he's going to do it a little more here now. Right. Again and again, I am asked to sanction marriage between one of our soldiers and a foreign girl. And, as often as not, the soldier is a splendid young lad and the girl a little trollop. Nothing but catastrophe could come of such unions. The branches of the services most exposed to this danger are the Navy and the anti-aircraft units because they stay in one place longer than anyone else. It was the same in the first war. The Flemish girls were most attractive, and had the war had a normal ending, many of them would undoubtedly have married German soldiers. The Fuhrer turns jestingly to Admiral Kranke. Your sailors have only three hours' liberty ashore each day. Can't you give them a bit more? If they must hang about in port, they'll be best employed chasing the girls. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, but here now good. he's saying, uh, yeah, but he's saying that um, in this second, in this last paragraph, I don't think that he's talking necessarily about non-white girls. Uh, no, I don't either. A racial problem. Uh -huh. He's talking about just foreign girls from. You know, countries that are not uh, related enough to Germany, like he thinks, obviously, that the Flemish girls were fine, you know. They were related, mm -hmm. and they were good for German men. But, but some of these foreign girls, well, these guys just get taken in, he said, by 
somebody, and these these unions never work out. They don't work out. So he's yeah. he's not lightened up on that, or he's not loosened his his ideas about that at all. He's kept up with that. Mm-hmm. Right. So well, there's a timeline for the six. Oh, good. And uh, it's just that, uh, oh, it's some good news. The Black Seaport of Novorossiysk is taken by the Germans. Okay. So that would be the Black Seaport. Well, that would be around the Crimea, probably. That's right. Or in the east of of, uh, Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. (laughs) Correct. Okay. The 6th of September, 1942, evening. German immigration and the use of chemical fertilizers. Between us and the British. Retaliation. Britain started the air bombing. In the past, it was economic pressure which compelled Germans to immigrate en masse. This pressure ceased abruptly, almost overnight, one might say, with the introduction of artificial chemical fertilizers, which had a profound effect on our food production problem. This must be added... The, to this must be added the industrialization of the country as the result of the inventions of the early 19th century. For centuries on end, war was confined to conflicts between states within the Reich. The British, on the other hand, have always waged war against foreigners and as a consequence have no conception of chivalry in war. For many years, we were held up to ridicule in the world press as Der Deutsche Mikkel. M-I-C-H-E-L, Mikkel. But now the British press yeah, treats exactly, us more kindly. Uh, it's actually Der Deutsche Michael. They say that as Michael. Michael, okay. Yeah. Okay, um, Michael. You know, the German Michael. Now, that's a, uh, that um, points to what this used to be. The stupid German was called a, a Michael for some reason, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it came from. That was considered the, the, the German who uh, was, what is that word, um, gullible, the gullible one. Right. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. they call him a stupid kraut and stuff like that. So it's probably Michael similar to that. Michael was especially That was what that was supposed to be about. Okay. But now the British press treats us more kindly. Gradually, they've come to regard us as socially acceptable because we've shown that we pursue our own way regardless of everybody. It is essential that we should give the British as good as we get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We must straight away declare that from now on, pilots descending by parachute will be fired on, that submarines will shell survivors from torpedoed ships, regardless of whether they're soldiers or civilians, women or children. Within a month, those cads over there will have realized that they hold the muddy end of the stick and will act accordingly. I make no secret of the fact that in my eyes the life of a single German is worth more than the lives of 20 Britishers, and in this respect we hold the advantage. We hold infinitely more prisoners of war than they do, and the great thing is to capture as many honorables as possible. The handcuffing of 130 officers after the Dieppe raid had a splendid effect. They are completely indifferent to the fate of the ordinary soldier, but the hanging of a half a dozen British generals would shake British society to its very foundations. Now that Mrs. Churchill goes about arm-in-arm with Madame Maisky, British prisoners of war cannot complain if they're made to live with Russian prisoners. This would be an excellent measure, to which their only counter would be to make our prisoners live with the Italians. 
If they were to threaten more drastic reprisals, we will retort by hanging the captains of all ships sunk. The merchant navy would then begin to act very differently. The Japanese do this while we entertain them with coffee and cognac. The British are realists, devoid of any scruple and as cold as ice. But as soon as we show our teeth, they become propitiatory and almost friendly. It was the British who started air attacks. For four months, we patiently and perhaps erroneously held our hands. The German is always restrained by moral scruples, which means nothing to the British. To the latter, such an attitude is merely a sign of weakness and stupidity. In the past, we have readjusted the balance only by retorting in the most ruthless and even barbarous manner. Our gains in the West may add a measure of charm to our possessions and constitute a contribution to our general security, but for our eastern but our eastern conquests are infinitely more precious, for they are foundations the foundations of our very existence. <clears throat> I like this section because you hear so much in American history and anything you see on television the blitz, the bombing of London and what those people and the horrible Germans bombing churches and, and, and all this stuff and never mention that it was the damn Brits that started bombing civilians in the first place. Germany told them, knock it off, we don't make war on civilians and Churchill insisted, keep doing it. And then they conducted the most heinous brands of warfare with the with the fire bombings and things like this and and it was always the Germans who were accused, naturally, because the winners write the history books and, and report in the, in the newspapers. But it was always the Germans who were taken to task as being cruel. And all this stuff he listed here, pilots parachuting out of their damaged planes, shot, uh, and, and things like this. And the British were doing that sort of thing right. to the Germans and and, right. uh, and shooting at... If they sunk a German ship, you know, uh, the guys, I mean, I, even a warship, not just a, a liner but uh, or a transport ship, but a warship, and uh, German sailors are swimming around trying to save themselves, and they would be machine-gunned and things like this. And the British, they were doing that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. He, I think he made an important point here when he says, you know, for centuries on end, war was confined to conflicts between states within the Reich. The British, on the other hand, have always waged war against foreigners, and as a consequence, they have no conception of chivalry and war. And that's a very, very good point, because if you had different German states, uh, actually kin by blood and whatever, that fought one another, at at least they would be, uh, say, okay, you know, I'm not going to savagely take advantage of this situation, because we might be in it one of these days, and let's show some kindness and mercy here, we're going to win the battle, all right, but but it, it's not going to be some sort of rub-it-in-your-face slaughter. Well, on the other hand, the British fought the war exactly like the Soviets oh, yeah. would be fighting it. Oh, yeah. Ruthless. As though they yeah. had been invaded yeah. and so on, which they hadn't been. But this, right. um, this brings to my mind, uh, I, I wonder if he has in mind at all, somewhere in his mind, uh, uh, Dunkirk. That that was an yep. act at that early early in the war of saying, well, we don't want to, you know, uh, rub it in point. and uh, and That's uh, exactly right. uh, overdo it, and you know, uh, so we'll we'll let this this group of uh, soldiers yep. go. Off. Yeah, yeah. And then how Back was how was that those... received? That was received badly by everybody, and now that's used today by all kinds of people saying that Hitler was trying to lose the war or else he was an absolutely lousy 
uh, war uh, ruler, and, uh, you know, but uh, it's always made sense to me, considering all of his, his ideas about things. And That's right. Why, That's right. Yeah, the war wasn't such a wasn't at such a stage at that time either. You know, it was he no. was looking for peace. He was he kept trying to right. feel out, you know, how to how to end it. And from the and very that was beginning. the main thing about it, Carolyn, yeah. that's exactly what you just said was exactly the reason he called off the dogs and let two hundred and fifty thousand British troops load up and go back to their home island simply to say this is what I could have done to you, and this is stupid for us to be fighting each other. And he thought that the British would wake up to it and, and receive it like, let's rethink our position here. But they didn't, of course. And what they, they have taken this magnanimity of Hitler and turned it into, forget about what Hitler did, uh, look what these British accomplished. All kinds of ships and little rowboats and everything else gathered up and went across that channel and evacuated yeah. our soldiers in such an heroic action. And, and it's whole thing that it's history is so twisted and perverted, and it's just uh, it's sad. It's sad because the truth does not prevail. And uh, in this yeah. reading this sort of thing in in this book is an affirmation to me. It, it just makes me feel all the better because you know there are words in print. It shows that somewhere out there there are versions of what really happened and that are accurate and that are not just warmed over allied war propaganda and this is one of those things right okay 7th of september 1942 midday special guest reich minister speer reich's commissar cook field marshal Coke. milch coke okay yeah coke and field marshal milk school day memories towards a seasoned system of education. We pupils of the old Austria were brought up to respect old people and women, but on our professors we had no mercy. They were our natural enemies. The majority of them were somewhat mentally deranged, and quite a few ended their days as honest-to-God lunatics. Those among them who were good fellows we treated with the utmost affection, but they were very, very few and far between. Information about the individual weaknesses of the various masters was handed on from class to class and from generation to generation. In the third form, we had a physics master named Koenig. Each form knew that at the beginning of the new scholastic year, these, the pupils would be divided into two groups. Why? I still have no idea. Koenig would give the following order. The pupils on the side nearest the window will gather near the window. Those on the stove side of the room will gather in the vicinity of the stove. Immediately, the pupils rushed to do the reverse. The wretched man danced with indignation, exclaiming that the students became more stupid with every year. It never entered his head that the real, the real fool was he himself. The priest who taught us divinity was a very tubby, portly little man. Before his entry, we used to slant the forms inwards along the gangway through which he had to pass, making it narrower and narrower. Never did the stupid man realize the trick. Solemnly, he would walk on until finally, halfway to his desk, he found himself stuck between the benches. 
Before the lesson in natural science, we used to strew the floor of the classroom with grass and nutshells and <laughs> explain innocently that we had been studying botany. <laughs> we, I thought that was real we, funny. Uh -huh. We had a methodical plan, according to the season of the year, for fomenting riot and chaos in the classroom. In the spring, a very successful trick was to release a swarm of cockchafers in class and then exclaim in unison, Oh, oh, sir, how can we study with all these cockchafers in the room? As you may imagine, I was particularly bad odor in I was in particularly bad odor with the teachers. I showed not the slightest aptitude for foreign languages, though I might have done had not the teacher been a, a congenital idiot. In addition, I could not bear the sight of him. And in honesty, I must confess that the feeling was reciprocated. Behind a frowsy beard, one caught a glance of a collar, greasy and yellow with dirt. And he was in every way a most repellent creature. He was furious because I learnt not a word of French. A bright youngster of 13 or 14 can always get the better of a teacher dulled by the grand years of teaching. Our teachers were absolute tyrants. They had no sympathy with youth. Their one object was to stuff uh, our brains and to turn us into erudite apes like themselves. If any pupil showed the slightest trace of originality, they persecuted him relentlessly, and the only model pupil, pupils whom I ever got to know have all been failures in afterlife. Good teaching should recognize and develop the personality of the individual pupil. In this respect, the foundation of a core of teachers and the revision of educational methods have brought a, great, a very great improvement in modern times. Among our teachers, there was only one who dressed decently. And it is an interesting fact that when I once visited Klagenfurt, I found him in the SS. The old gentleman, who was then already on pension, had, it seems, been a member of the illegal SS before the Anschluss. I was very much moved to meet him again. Hmm. I can readily understand why the youth of ancient Greece sometimes went far afield in order to study under the teacher of their choice. And it was grouped around their teachers, by the way, that the youth of ancient days went into battle. There is no enthusiasm greater than that of a young man of 13 to 17 years of age. They will gladly let themselves be cut to pieces for the sake of their teacher if he's a real man. I should very much like to see our youth led into battle by their teachers. Isn't that nice? Uh, that's very, very neat. Uh, and, you know, and, and you could also put in your mind where he's saying here, these young 13- to 17-year-old boys would gather around a teacher that they really loved and, and let themselves be cut to pieces fighting for that person. Uh, well, that's exactly the same thing about a very good uh, uh, military commander. The men will go the extra mile for a person like that. And you've got to have gifted men leading that military to be successful and and uh, and here he draws the you know the thing about students and teachers uh, into that same circle, but I thought it was really really a nice little section. Yes, I, I you know I didn't mention at the beginning I was going to say that this Reichskommissar Koch was the Gauleiter of East Prussia first and then of Ukraine from uh, 41 to 43, and okay. he's got a very bad reputation 
particularly in Ukraine, for being uh, terrible and <clears throat> considering the Ukrainians and the Russians subhuman and making comments like that. But I'm not sure all those comments of his are are accurate. But even if they are, well, he was he was particularly like that. But he did a very good job, and Hitler always uh, supported him. And I wanted to say that, uh, speaking of how to pronounce his name, you know, I, I, re I learned this week, listening to some of the uh, past interviews I did with Wilhelm Christman, that I've been telling you that Dr. Lai's name was pronounced Lay, because for some, I don't know why, for some reason, I thought I'd been hearing it that way, but I've probably been hearing it for myself that way, and not really hearing it, because, you know, it's spelled... L E Y and it's like uh yes. Reinhard Heydrich. I've always wanted to call him Heydrich. I called him Heydrich for the longest time and I finally can remember to say Heydrich. And so I was absolutely wrong about Doctor Lye saying it was Doctor Lay and you were right, you were trying to call him Doctor Lye. So uh I do apologize for that Ray. <laughs> well that's I'm, quite all right. I I'm you know fairly I started wrong, off but that's what I would do, too. I mean, looking at it, you'd say it's L-E-Y-L-A-Y. Uh, and like this M-I-L-C-H here. Uh, yeah, Milch. Field Marshal M-I-L-C-H. Uh, well, the C-H to me in German would be a K there, so you would actually say his name like Milk. But that's just well, me. Not, I don't know I don't if that's think. Right. I don't think so. I think everybody says Milch. Milch? Uh, okay. I don't know why the C-H would. Oh, you mean like Reich. Milch. Milk. Yeah, and yeah, Reich, and at the end of the Heidrich. But people also but say Reich. Right, it's also yeah. pronounced Reich. So it could be Yeah, Milch. that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You really have to be there to really know, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've come to the text now where my book says Part 4. 1943, 13th of June, 24th of June. Now, this is that jump of almost 10 months from where we just left early September, uh, and we go to mid-June. And uh, so if you you said you had some things here, why don't you go ahead? Oh, yeah, the timeline. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Well, starting in October 1942, some of the things that were going on was the first successful launch of the A-4 rocket at Pinamundi. Tells you some about it. And another thing, uh, there's, you know, a lot of things, but what stands out to me is uh, heavy RAF activity over El Alamein. That gets going again. Oh, bombardment of Henderson Field, field on Guadalcanal. That's not, oh, here's the one. On the 18th of October, Hitler issues a commando order, ordering all captured commandos to be executed immediately. Uh, now, they make a big deal out of that, you know, but that was actually... Uh, the commandos that he's talking about uh, the irregular fighters, as far as far as Guerrilla? I know, not yeah. yeah, and that's what it was about. And they were if they were captured, they were to be executed because they were doing a lot right. of damage. And this that's was right. a secret order; it wasn't made public. It was uh, you know it was uh, issued to the to the military commanders and so on. And some of them didn't like it and didn't want to do it, and thought that mm -hmm. it was against the. Uh, Conventions and so on. Geneva Convention, yeah. And other conventions, um, the Hague Convention and so on. So, right, and then yeah. uh, conscription age in Britain was reduced to eighteen. So they were they were digging in there. And the second Battle right. of Al Alamein took place on the twenty third of October. 
And that's um, pretty much, uh, Rommel is pretty much uh, losing his momentum there, never gains it back. Now, if you have some, I'm looking through here. I didn't. What I had, you know, this 10 months that the book skips now, there were, and I'm glad you had what you had there because there, it was an extremely significant point in time and a critical time uh, for Germany uh, because two uh, very, very disastrous things happened. Uh, one was in February of 43, the loss at, uh, at Stalingrad and uh, the uh, surrender of the, I think it was the 7th Army. Uh, and then uh, just a short time after that, uh, Patton and Montgomery defeated Rommel's Africa Corps uh, and essentially ended the war on the continent of Africa, uh, took the Germans out of that. So you have two significant military losses here. And once Stalingrad uh, was lost and uh, General Paulus surrendered, I think it was close to 300,000 men, uh, and lost so on, many in the fight. It was on it was on January thirty first, two thousand. I mean, uh, nineteen forty three. That's that good. That I had surrendered. Ju yeah, just as uh, early February. But at any rate, then the tide definitely starts turning, and uh, the forces of Germany are are starting to have to give ground as they're being pushed back, because concurrent with this. Uh, loss uh, and surrender of uh, Paulus's 7th Army uh, was the Army. tons and Army, Ray. Six, six, okay. Yeah. But the tons of military equipment, food, everything else has been flowing into Soviet Russia from across the Bering Straits in Alaska from the United States and, and uh, readying uh, Stalin and his generals for a huge offensive. Uh, in fact, a lot of that was uh, one of the reasons why Stalingrad was able to hold out. There was still artillery and things like this that the Russians were using there was because Americans provided it. And, and so the war definitely turned against National Socialist Germany in early 1943. Yeah, but in, so, in November 42, the battles at Stalingrad were going strong, uh, but mm -hmm. it's Germans were still in a strong position, but the Soviets kept trying to make. Uh, it was on uh, November 19th that uh, Georgi Zhukov launched Operation uh, Uranus, or Uranus, aimed at encircling the Germans in the city and turning the tide. Doesn't say whether they succeeded or not, but uh, yeah, in the 21st they attempted to encircle Stalingrad. The Red Army did, and then the battle. Uh, the actual, I guess, what's called the Battle of Stalingrad on the 22nd. Yeah. Um, that, and the situation for German attackers of Stalingrad seems desperate during the Soviet counterattack. Oh, General Friedrich Paula sends Adolf Hitler a telegram saying that the German Sixth Army is surrounded. Well, and so it goes on during this time, and in December, continuing. And uh, so you, uh, maybe that's why they didn't have any conversations recorded. Maybe Hitler didn't uh -huh. want to record, and this was a kind of a crucial period of time. And he was fighting. In a sense, he was uh, resisting the generals, or this general anyway. Um, yes, that's right. Who, uh, who wanted to, you know, retreat or give up, but he didn't want them to. That's um, right. So, and he actually thought 
when they surrendered that it was a disgrace and that every man there should have fought to his death. That's what he thought that they should have done. Yeah. Um, you know, and for the, you know, that would be a better end for them than what they did get. And the shame and the, the disgust of having to be, you know, surrendered to that Red Army and then... Uh, how how many of them survived from there? I really don't know that's that right. much. That's Not so much. So many of them died. You know, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's after right. they surrendered. So that's true. And uh, like I say, it was an awful bad period. And, you know, throughout this book, the one thing that is consistent with the Fuhrer is he has been stre- stressing the, the extreme need for a positive attitude uh, during a war. You know, you've got to keep the conviction and the yeah. belief that you're going to win this win. thing. Right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and and now that the the worst, the most, some very devastating losses have occurred, it's. Uh, I think maybe this is why the table talk ceased for about ten months because it would have been doom and gloom to get together and be talking about things if if it wasn't just more of Hitler's philosophical outlooks and it actually focused in on the battles. And so it would have been very negative. And well, so, it would never uh, have done yeah. that. Because the, the, talk, the table talk was always just expe- uh, yes. supposed to be light well, stuff, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, a re- relief from all the heavy war, right. war uh, yeah. business. But obviously maybe he didn't feel like he could, he wanted to have that kind of conversation being recorded at this time. But he did yeah. allow it somewhat a few times for a little while in 43 and a little while in 44. Not much, so, you know, we really don't have much left to go now. It's, right. This is only going to be right. June 13th to the 24th in 1943, yeah. and it's going to move on to 44. Yeah. So, uh... Okay. <clears throat> We're ready to jump into this June? Yeah. 13th of June, 1943, evening. Dangers of over-centralization of cultural life, the future of technology, the French painters, the great artistic achievements of the 19th century were German, architecture in Berlin and Munich. And, uh, Carolyn, that right there, those uh, headline uh, uh, settings for this particular bit of information, that tells you exactly what you just said. That's the kind of thing that he would keep talking about and that he has stressed throughout the book are things like this, and he addresses mm-hmm. them. He's, he's, he says, I'm very nervous lest one day when I am no longer here, someone should get the idea of centralizing in Berlin a series of museums for the artistic masterpieces of the Reich, for military trophies and weapons, and for examples of German industrial and scientific genius. This would give a completely erroneous conception of the unified state. And the worst of it would be that the initiator would certainly claim that in so doing, he was following the conceptions, quote, of our late Fuhrer, unquote. In point of fact, we should, on the contrary, pursue a policy of judicious decentralization. The Duchess Museum in Munich, with its 23 kilometers of exhibits of all kinds, amply fulfills the purely national need And it would be disastrous if somebody said, we must have a museum in Berlin with 45 kilometers of exhibits. In the military museum, which I intend to found in Linz, I wish to devote one section to the science of fortification, from the earliest times down to the days of the Maginot Line and the West Wall. 
exact models will be necessary in order to arouse the interest of young people. One of the great attractions of the Duchess Museum in Munich is the presence of, of a large number of perfectly constructed working models which visitors can manipulate themselves. It is not just by chance that so many of the young people of the inland town of Munich have answered the call of the sea. We must start from the viewpoint that technical science today stands at the threshold of its development. Motorization is now only taking its first few hesitant steps. Many centuries passed before human energy was replaced by animal energy, and it will equally be, as be many centuries before motorization reaches its full perfection. Now, these completely changes the subject uh, in this next sentence, but uh, anything you uh, want to comment on that? Well, he's always interested in museums. And uh, mm -hmm. I thought that it was uh, this first part of it, talking about the, the not you don't want a German museum with all the stuff that about Germany. These are they're huge. Uh, some of those German museums in Germany about you know they have the, everything about Germany and its history and everything. My God, it goes on and on and on and on, and and it's all so interesting. You want to look at a little more, but you could spend uh, a week, I guess, in in that one. Sure. I think I was in the one in Munich. And it was just too much for me, finally. <laughs> but he said, you don't want to have the same thing in Berlin. You don't need to repeat it, something like that. So I thought that was very sensible. And he's, I think he yeah. shows that he's um, a, a little concerned about what's going to be done after he's gone. That's why he tried to yes. get so much done and set so many uh, policies and so on of how things would be done. Because uh, while he hoped uh, that those would carry on, uh, as as well as he did, you know that never happens, and so uh, he's thinking, well, sure. what, what might they do when I <laughs> when I'm not here to stop them, you know? And um, that had to be a concern. But also sure. uh, that uh, he likes founding museums, and he's going to found this military museum in Linz. He's he, he's obviously spent a lot of time in museums, and he's learned a lot from them, and so he's he's big on uh, on education. In a way like that, Certainly. you know, in that kind of a way. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's passing culture on to uh, mm -hmm. the, the common folk and giving them a chance to to be oh. proud, proud of the nation. Yeah, and I know what I was going to gonna say. I was just going to add that naturally you have a major art museum in every major city. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. He's not saying that you only need one, you know, art museum. But this particular kind of a museum, these particular type of museums, like you wouldn't need to have a, if he's going to start a, Military Museum in Linz, he wants that to be the one, you know. And you don't need to have sure. one then in all the other cities, too. So they shouldn't be competing right. in that way. But as far as art museums, uh, that would be a different story. Sure. Okay. Okay, then Nice changes the subject. He says, I cannot make up my mind to buy a picture by a French painter because I'm not sure of the dividing line between what I understand and what I do not understand. I have the same feeling when I look at paintings by Corinth and Trubner, to mention only two of our German artists. These men started by painting pictures of great merit, and then, urged on by pride, they started to produce the most startling and extraordinary works. In literature, the Jew has already blazed the same pernicious trail, and artists like Corinth and Trubner have followed them. The result is the frightful daubs with which they now inflict us. 
in painting, the Italians were truly great from the 14th century to the 17th. In the 18th century, they rested on their laurels. In the 19th, their life began to wane, and today Italian art is completely degenerate. All this seems quite incomprehensible to me, but I suppose it's the law of averages. In the 19th century, the greatest masterpieces in every branch were the works of us Germans. In the same period, the French, too, had some good artists, but they all deteriorated in time. When I think of the Paris Opera House, I cannot help feeling that those of Dresden and Vienna are in a very different category. The design itself of the Paris Opera is a work of genius, but the execution, from the artistic point of view, is very ordinary, and the interior is pretentious, overcrowded with decoration, and devoid of all artistic taste. We must make sure that the new opera house, which we intend to build in Munich, surpasses everything in every way that has ever gone before it. Munich of the 19th century has many characteristics in common with the Berlin of Frederick the Great's days. Conceptions were magnificently wide, but construction could not keep pace, simply because the necessary money was not available. In Frederick the Great's Berlin, they were so short of funds that it was possible to put statues only on the main plinth of a monument. In Munich, it's freely admitted that the, house, the, the houses of the period were shoddily built. In the construction of the Prinz-Regentin <coughs> Prinz Re, Prinz Theater, every possible economy was practiced, and the cost of construction, apart from interior decoration, was under 1,300,000 marks. In Berlin, at the same time, the scale was more generous. The Reichstag, monstrosity though it was, cost in all every bit of 28 million marks. But that it was well built and truly built was proved at the time of the Great Fire. The Palace of Justice in Munich is perhaps the most beautiful example of the Baroque of recent times. Typical of the epoch of liberalism is the Palais de Justice in Brussels. It is the Cyclops which dominates the whole town. And fancy having the law courts, of all things, as the dominating feature of a place. I'm quite sure that a man is never more ready to fight for his country than when it's a question of defending the artistic and intellectual heritage of the nation. We have a fresh proof of it today. The destruction of a national monument has a greater effect on public opinion than the destruction of a factory. So. Well... I think here I've got a note that I think he's probably alluding to the bombing of the city centers, or he's saying that because that's so much uh, in the forefront that the uh, national monuments are being, in great churches and so on, are being uh, destroyed. And that's this right. has a big effect on the people, uh, more than if a factory is destroyed. Yes. And of course, and you can rebuild the factory, as they always say, but these other things are irreplaceable. That's Even right. though they, they rebuilt a lot of it um, and copied it exactly from what it was, it's not exactly right. the same. Well, I thought that there wasn't anything going on in the timeline during these days. Right. And so that may be why it was quiet, and so that may be why he was having some of this recorded, and, you know. Having some discussion, you know, some talk at the table, sure. more than usual. But anyway, uh, we've got time to do uh, the next one, which is pretty interesting. Sure. 
And uh, yeah. then, then I'm going to find out from you how much, if you think we're going to finish next week. Okay. <clears throat> 14th of June, 1943, evening. In defense of Metternich. Metternich and Bismarck, a parallel. Metternich is often misjudged. He did his utmost to infuse new life into a corpse. As Chancellor of Austria, and from the point of view of the Habsburg dynasty, he could not have acted otherwise. He served the Habsburgs, animated by the desire to restore them to them their glories of the past. It was this which inspired his superhuman effort to bring about a renaissance of the old empire. That he was unscrupulous in the means he employed to this end is undeniable, but his actions must be judged in the light of the conditions which prevailed at the time. No one, for example, could have envisaged in 1830 or 1840 the methods employed by Bismarck. It is not, therefore, a question of Bismarck or Metternich, but rather a question of an imperial chancellery or that heterogeneous conglomeration, Germanic Confederation. At Frankfurt, nothing was accomplished and nothing could have been accomplished, and yet it can truthfully be said that each in his way was pursuing the same object. Metternich hoped to obtain it by reestablishing the authority of the Habsburgs, Bismarck by asserting the predominance of Prussia. Both avoided any parliamentary solution. Bismarck succeeded, Metternich failed, but that is no reason for condemning the latter. <clears throat> Without the drastically revolutionary step of war in 1866, Bismarck himself would not have succeeded. And had he failed, he would certainly have been crucified. When Metternich was at the helm, the time was not ripe for a decisive solution. For the same reason, Bismarck cannot be reproached for not having founded the greater German, German Reich of today. In the struggle against Napoleon, Metternich was as enthusiastic as the most devoted of German patriots. How undecided public opinion was, even after 1866, on the question of whether Austrian or Prussian hegemony should prevail, is clearly demonstrated by the fact that in 1867 the Prussian conservatives took their stand against Bismarck and demanded his resignation. It is obviously very difficult to do justice retrospectively to a man like Metternich. Well, there he's he's being very kind to Metternich, and That's probably right. for good reason, uh, which I think is good, and saying that they just were trying to create two different things and had had the right mm -hmm. to do so, and Bismarck came out uh, ahead and did his. But here I thought when he said. Without the drastically revolutionary step of war in 1866, Bismarck himself would not have succeeded. So I, you know, it comes to my mind that that uh, he may be feeling, uh, he may be thinking about these things. He's saying that that the War of 1866, which culminated in 1871 with uh, the the creation of the new Reich, um, was necessary. And uh, while it might have seemed questionable. But Bismarck needed to do that. And he may be thinking about people saying that now that the war is not going as well, it was not necessary to go into this war, and not necessary to stay in it, and they need to retreat from uh, Russia. You know, he, he may be thinking to himself that war was necessary in this case, and he couldn't have done otherwise. Right. That's what comes to me. 
Yeah, well, he's got to have his correct. mind on this stuff a lot. <laughs> he can't. True. He can't really ignore it, but he's talking about other things. And um, but that that was very interesting to me. Well, it looks like we can do the next section. Yeah, yeah, we're all right on the next one. Fifteenth well, of June, nineteen forty-three, midday. Intellectual and artistic poverty, bric-a-brac and chromium plate. Only decadent art is harmful. Teutonic nostalgia the need of open spaces. The industrialization of a country invariably provokes an opposite reaction and gives rise to a recrudescence of a certain measure of romanticism, which not infrequently finds expression in a mania for the collection of bibelots and some somewhat trashy objects of art. It is a phenomenon which recurs with each fresh migration from the land to the town. It is not the museums and the picture galleries which attract these newcomers, but the vaults which foster the liking for the mysterious, like the blue grotto of the nymphs. The process of readjustment takes 50 or 100 years. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the period of economic and industrial progress in Germany coincided with a period of artistic hesitancy and poverty. One cannot in justice blame the masses, when one remembers the artistic junk with which the big industrialists filled their houses. But the latter were people of intelligence, and them I blame greatly. The masses are still attracted by somewhat trashy art, but that has nothing in common with artistic degeneracy. If I'm asked whether I am prepared to condone this, my reply is that I will condone anything which does not lead to artistic depravity. The administration for what we sometimes no, call the admiration. Yeah, excuse me. The admiration for what we sometimes call chocolate box beauty is not of itself vicious. It gives evidence, at least, of artistic feeling, which may well become later the basis for real taste. Permanent injury is done only by real depravity in art. It's perfectly true that we are a people of romantics quite different from the Americans, for example, who see nothing beyond their skyscrapers. Our romanticism has its origins in the, in the intense appreciation of nature that is inherent in us Germans. Properly to appreciate such artists as Weber, Ludwig Richter, and the other romanticists, one must know Franconian mountains, for that is the background which gives birth to romanticism in both music and painting, and, of course, the stories and legends of our folklore, folklore also make a potent contribution. The only romance which stirs the heart of the, the North American is that of the redskin. But it is curious to note that the writer who has produced the most vivid redskin romances is a German. One thing the Americans have, and which we lack, is the sense of the vast open spaces. Hence the particular characteristics of our own form of nostalgia. There comes a time when the, this desire for expansion can no longer be contained and must burst into action. It is an irrefutable fact that the Dutch, for example, who occupied the most densely populated portions of the German lands, were driven centuries ago by this irresistible desire for expansion to seek ever wider conquest abroad. What, I wonder, would happen to us if we had not at least the illusion of vast spaces at our disposal? For me, one of the charms of the Spessart is that one can drive there 
for hours on end and never meet a soul. Our autobahning give me the same feeling. Even in the more thickly populated areas, they reproduce the atmosphere of the open spaces. Well, there he is again, appreciating the open spaces. Um, he really true. does, you know. Uh, he talks about that's why what he loves about going into the east. <laughs> okay, you looked yep. up what? Well, I look up this. Uh, this spell is B I B E L O T S, and it's B below. Mm -hmm. uh, the T, the S makes the plural B belows, and I thought, now what is this? And it's it's like a curio, uh, like glass menagerie. Little figures are. Uh, things that you'd see right. on a hutch in someone's home or whatever like this, right. uh, and 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 it says and somewhat trashy objects of art. Uh, and uh, anyway, I looked that up, and then there was something else I was going to comment on here. Oh yeah, I really like this. Our romanticism has its origins in the intense appreciation of nature that is inherent in us Germans. That is a very defining, accurate meaningful sentence to me because I, I think he's uh, he's nailed it and it's been proven throughout the centuries and one other interesting thing that I thought in here when he said the, the only romance which stirs the heart of the North American is that of the redskin but it's curious to note that the writer who has produced the most vivid redskin romances is a German and he would be talking about James Fenimore Cooper uh, and uh, well, anyway, that's uh, you know he might be talking about that German writer who he loved so much as a youth, who wrote those cowboy oh, you know, stories. Okay, you could that could be very correct. That was mentioned earlier in our book. His, I was trying to think of his name because I didn't read this section yes. ahead, so I can't think of his name. But you know, he's talked about him a lot, and he's still that's very right. very popular. And that's who yeah, I thought. Yeah, you know he that may be true. Thinking of. Yeah, that's I think Cooper yeah. has has a he's probably more Brit. Uh, yeah, uh, I it bet you. He, like I'm it. sure he has a German in him. But uh, yeah, but Carl, well, now, somebody, wasn't it? It was Carl May. Carl May. Carl May is Carl the May. author. Yep, of those right. uh, stories. He used yeah. to. Yeah, you're exactly right because I remember mm -hmm. now covering that material. He used to, you know, talk about how May wrote about the the West. The mm -hmm. old west and the stories of, mm -hmm. of that, and of course, meaning the probably the the gunmen and the Indians and things like this, and right. and uh, yeah, you're correct. That's right. Yeah, very very uh, adventurous <laughs> stories and so on. Mm -hmm. So now here we are. We've got a, a few more minutes. We're at the 17th of June, 1943, and I didn't yeah. check to see how much how many pages we've got to go. Okay, now this. This one right here is less than a half a page long. It's only about a quarter of a page long. Let's see. Uh, now, you're talking about the possibility of finishing next week. Yeah, no, uh, no, we won't. No, I just went went through all this. But I was wondering how many well, if we if we average about ten pages at a time. Well, how many well, we have? See, I had us, I had calculated us finishing on the twenty third which is two Thursdays from now. Uh -huh. uh, and I think that's realistic, uh, Carolyn. I you're I, right. My book here ends on page 722, and, and everything after that is simply index and references and such as this. So, mm -hmm. And right now we are at the bottom of page 707, 
to 722, uh, that's 15 pages. And... Uh, Actually, it is not 15 because there is a, page, a page in here that says, it says Part 5, 1944, 13th of March, 29th and 30th of November. And, and the, the book counts that and the, the back of it as a page. So actually, we have only about 12 pages left. That's right. I'm just looking. I was just going to say that. I'm on page 24 mm -hmm. here. On my uh, word, my word processor pages, and uh, it goes to 37. So we're well. We might not quite finish next week, but we might almost finish, and then yeah. we can uh, use the following week to finish and to discuss. And that's what I'm looking forward sure. to because I want to be prepared for that because I think it's sure. important that we do a real good wrap up of this. And I so too. I want to try to do the best. Now, what's, the, what's that date going to be? Uh, let's see. Today is the ninth. It'll be the 23rd. Uh, okay. The, the next, next Thursday okay. is the 16th, and we will get nearly all of this done. And yeah. so the following, what we'll do, we'll wrap that thing up, and then we can uh, talk about it. Right. And, you know, the 20th is Hitler's birthday, and it's on a Monday. That's right. This year, I'm going to be busy preparing for that, but that will give me get me right into the mood for getting ready to do the summing up of table talk. So, all right. Well, we're going to say goodnight then, ladies and gentlemen. Let me get to the right music here. And uh, thank you for listening. This has been uh, me and Ray. <laughs> and this has been Table Talk, Hitler's Table Talk, April 9th. So we'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Thank you, folks. Bye-bye.